1: Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13.
2: We are here today to mourn the loss of a child of God, but not just a child of God, a true disciple of God. Our dear Arlis spoke the verses of the Bible as if they were the verses tattooed on her very heart. She reached out to those in need. She spread the word with love in her heart and light in her eyes. She never held back her love because God never holds back His love. She modeled all that she learned from God's love and grace. Arlis was a member of the body of Christ who was cut off as she prayed. Violence has swept to the very altar of God. But her death is not in vain. We have learned the power of Christ through her actions, and we have seen Christ living in her. And lest we not forget that Christ, too, was cruelly murdered by cruel and perverse men, he was a victim. Arlis, in her death, was like her Lord. I assure you, that Arliss is with Christ in glory.
1: October 15, 1974. Three days after Arliss Perry was found murdered in Stanford University's Memorial Church, Reverend Hammerton Kelly gave a eulogy at her first memorial service.
3: There were about 150 people in attendance, including Arliss's 19-year-old husband, Bruce, who sat in the front row between his father and his uncle.
1: If you'll recall, Bruce was briefly considered a suspect in her murder when police found him in his apartment covered in blood.
3: That blood, however, turned out to be his own from a terrible nosebleed, which was common for him to experience when he was under extreme stress.
1: And the stress that brought on the nosebleed, his young wife had not come home the evening of October
3: 11th. Steve Crawford, The campus security guard who found her body was also very briefly considered a person of interest before he was quickly cleared of any suspicion. A passerby then told police of a man
1: seen near the church late at night. The witness described a man who was likely 23 to 25 years of age with a medium build and sandy colored hair. This seemed to lead nowhere. Police took a palm print off of a candlestick the killer used
3: to sexually assault Arliss and they recovered DNA from the scene. But nothing came of this either. Police interviewed over 100 suspects and eventually cleared them all.
1: The worshippers who were praying when Arliss entered the church never came forward with any kind of information.
3: It wasn't until a memorial service for Arliss that someone finally
1: came forward. The information from this source thrust the case in a new direction and deepened the mystery surrounding Arliss Perry's gruesome and untimely demise.
3: This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. This is our final episode on Arlis Perry.
1: If you like the show, we would immensely appreciate if you could leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast directory. And don't forget to subscribe while you're there, because a new episode comes out every Tuesday.
3: You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast, and on Twitter at Parcast Network.
1: Arliss Perry. She was only 19 years old at the time of her death in
3: 1974, newly married to her high school sweetheart. And she had just moved from Bismarck, North Dakota to Palo Alto, California to be with him. She had only been in the Golden State for six weeks. The same day as her memorial service, the Stanford Daily published an article entitled, No Suspects Yet in Murder Case. The following is taken directly from that article.
4: The body of Mrs. Perry, newlywed wife of sophomore pre-medical student Bruce Perry, was discovered in Memorial Church by a security guard who was opening the church for Sunday services. A Santa Clara Sheriff's spokesman told The Daily yesterday that the case was definitely a sex murder, but that there is no evidence to support theories and media reports of a ritualistic black mass slaying. Mrs. Perry was found nude from the waist down, and had been molested with two three-foot altar candles. Stanford officials yesterday offered a $10,000 reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of Mrs. Perry's assailant.
3: In an article published the following day on October 15th, the Stanford Daily alluded to the fact that despite the reward, no one was coming forward.
1: The article referenced the three anonymous worshippers who may have seen Arliss in the church the night she died. The following is from that article.
4: Investigators are looking for three people they think were inside Memorial Church Saturday night. Santa Clara County Sheriff's Captain Frank Musinek, Chief of Detectives, said police hope at least one of the three saw the victim in the church and might be able to provide information about others there shortly before it closed. The three other persons who are in the church have not yet contacted police.
1: The three worshipers were
3: believed to be two men and one woman. They didn't come forward. But someone else did. Due to confidentiality, this person will only be referred to as John Doe.
1: This man worked with Arliss at the law firm of Spieth, Blaze, Valentine, and Klein. He attended her memorial service. And it was here in the church that he got a good look at Arliss's husband, Bruce, And that was when John Doe became deeply troubled.
3: The man claiming to be Arliss's husband was not the man John Doe believed was her husband. This may sound
1: confusing, so let us explain.
3: John Doe contacted the Santa Clara County Sheriff's
1: Department. He then sat down with the lead detectives on the case.
5: Thanks for coming in. Course. On the phone, you said you had information regarding Mrs. Perry the day before her death. That's right. Please explain.
6: Uh, well, just around lunchtime. Um,
5: on October 11th?
6: Yes, on October 11th. It was about noon. A man came into the firm. He walked up to Arliss.
5: And where was Arliss?
6: Uh, she was behind the reception desk where she always sits. I mean, sat.
5: Okay. And what happened?
6: They started talking.
5: Could you hear what they were saying?
6: No, but I don't think it was very good. What makes you say that? Their conversation seemed serious, intense even. For both of them. I thought maybe Arliss was upset with him. Why? Uh, Just the way she was looking at him. I thought maybe she was mad he was visiting her at work. She'd only been on the job a couple of weeks.
5: Do you know who he was? Well, that's the
6: thing. I assumed he was her husband. she told us she was recently married. But it wasn't Bruce. No. And I only realized this at the funeral. Because when I saw the man who was actually her husband, I realized it was silly to assume the visitor was.
5: It seems like a natural inclination.
6: I guess so.
3: What
5: can you tell us about this man? Describe him. Uh, he... He
6: looked to be in his early 20s. Do you remember what he was wearing? Jeans, a plaid shirt. And what about his build? He was pretty big. Husky-like with broad shoulders. Very athletic. At least that's what it looked like.
5: How tall would you say he was?
6: Mm, I don't know. About
5: 5'10". Hair color? Um,
6: Blondish?
5: Any distinguishing characteristics? Not really. I mean,
6: none that I can remember.
5: What happened next?
6: After about 15 minutes, the man left and Arliss went back to work. I thought it was kind of odd she didn't introduce him to anyone.
5: Odd because at the time you thought he was her husband? Right. Well, I think we have all we need. I'll show
1: you out. After the interview with John Doe, investigators reached out to Bruce to ask him if he had visited Arliss at the law firm the day
3: before her death. Bruce told them that he hadn't. In fact, Arliss had told him not to call the office or visit until she'd been there a while and had made a good impression. So he didn't. So who was this mystery man who spoke with Arliss literally hours before her death?
1: Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message.
3: And now, let's continue the story.
1: Investigators couldn't help but notice that the description John Doe gave of the mystery man was similar to the description of the man seen outside the church on the night Arliss was murdered.
3: If you'll recall, a witness described that man outside the church as 23 to 25 years of age with a medium build and sandy colored hair.
1: Investigators had a composite sketch drawn based on John Doe's and another witness's accounts.
3: This suspect in the sketch was located and then interrogated, but eventually cleared. Unfortunately, there isn't much information regarding him.
1: All the suspects who were interviewed were in California. What about contacts in Bismarck, North Dakota, Arliss's hometown?
3: I wondered about that also, could her killer have come from there?
1: The real question is, where exactly did this man come from and why did he show up a day before her death? A plethora of questions, but no real forward momentum.
3: Let's theorize,
1: did Arliss have a secret lover? It seems unlikely, considering her religious devotion and the fact that both Bruce and her friends in Bismarck said she was not known to keep secrets, ever.
3: Was the man a stalker? Maybe someone Arliss tried to convert at one point and then became obsessed with her.
1: Or developed a vendetta against her.
3: If we take John Doe's account to be accurate, then it seems Arliss and the Mystery Man had some sort of relationship, beyond being simple acquaintances.
1: What do you mean because they spoke for 15 minutes and Arliss seemed upset? Yes. Well, sadly, there wasn't much of a traceable connection between Arliss and this man, and it quickly turned into a dead end.
3: Meanwhile, Arliss's body was sent back home to Bismarck, which would be her final resting place.
1: A second service was held for her on October 18th, the day her body was buried in North Dakota.
3: About 300 of her friends, former schoolmates, and family members attended to pay their respects.
1: Was her killer among them?
3: He could have been, but the day of, there was nothing suspicious reported.
1: Right, but it was a very emotional gathering.
3: After Reverend Don DeCock read some of Arliss's favorite Bible verses, Arliss's close friend Jenny read a letter that Arliss had written on October
0: 6th, just
3: a week before her death.
0: We're on a picnic right now. It's about 90 degrees and we're suntanning in the hills. Bruce is studying and I'm writing letters. We went to the Stanford church this morning. Maybe you remember me telling you about it. The guest speaker was Malcolm Boyd. Maybe you've heard of him. He's the author of Are You Running With Me, Jesus? I've never read the book, but I'm going to be sure to now.
1: As you can imagine, the memorial was extremely emotional.
3: Besides the fact that people were attending a funeral for a beautiful young woman, the very location of the service was where Arliss and Bruce married just a few months earlier.
1: From a wedding to a funeral.
4: I just don't understand how anyone could do this to someone like Arliss.
0: I know. She had such a beautiful soul. And that husband of hers? Oh, his heart must be in a million pieces. Of course. And to think of her parents... It's always such a tragedy when the child goes before the parents. The ultimate tragedy. What are the police doing? All I've heard is that they're questioning witnesses. Someone has to know something. You would think, and maybe someone does, but maybe they're in hiding. Maybe they're staying quiet. For God's sake, why? Maybe they're afraid. Knowledge can get a person in trouble. Yes. Let's pray someone comes forward with some information. Let's pray for that and for the guidance of the detectives, that they do their jobs to the best of their abilities. Let God guide their minds and their hearts. Amen to that.
3: While Santa Clara detectives continued their investigation in Palo Alto, something strange happened in Bismarck.
1: At Arliss's grave.
3: The temporary marker used for her grave until the permanent stone was crafted was stolen. That's right, stolen.
1: The investigators at the Santa Clara Sheriff's Department eventually concluded that someone took it as a morbid souvenir. and eh, Not just anyone, perhaps the killer. But this was not the first souvenir associated with Arliss. Her killer likely removed some of her personal items from the crime scene.
3: One was a pair of eyeglasses.
1: And The other item is unknown, or more accurately, details haven't been released.
3: It is common for murderers to keep souvenirs, especially those who commit more than one murder.
1: Yes, some of the most famous serial killers collected souvenirs or trophies from their kills.
3: Notorious serial killer Ted Bundy kept his victims' heads in his house.
1: Australian serial killer Ivan Malat took his victims' camping equipment after he murdered them in the woods of New South Wales.
3: Robert Hansen killed several women in Alaska and collected
1: their jewelry as souvenirs. And these are just a few examples. It's definitely a real
3: phenomenon. And it sounds like the same thing happened in Arliss's case. Which steered the police in an additional direction. They no longer confined their search strictly to
1: California. They now sought out information in North Dakota
3: if you'll remember from episode one, Arliss' parents were concerned about a story that they'd heard that Arliss had visited some members of a cult in the hopes of converting them to Christianity.
1: And the fear was Arliss' attempt at conversion angered them, and they eventually set a plan in motion to kill her.
3: But that sounds a bit vague, doesn't it? I mean, however, this was the general theory that wouldn't die. That's right. And it opened up the
1: idea that Arliss was killed by one or more members of a cult or Satanist group.
3: First people theorized that she was killed by followers of Alistair Crowley.
1: Born in England in 1878, Alistair Crowley was an occultist who practiced black magic and founded the religion Thelema in the early 1900s.
3: Thelema is considered by many as a semi-Satanist cult.
1: Their basic motto was, do what thou wilt. Crowley has been referred to as the great beast. As well as the wickedest man in the world.
3: When he was only 23 years old, he joined a cult by the name of Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. Honestly, I'm not making this up.
1: He later joined a secret society called the Ordo Templi Orientis. Also, not making that up.
3: But after a trip to Egypt in 1908, Crowley wrote down what he believed were divine messages.
1: On a trip to Cairo, Crowley had a transformative experience that led to his creation of Thelema. This became the Book of the Law, the basis for his new religion. The foundational principle of this religion centered around individual will and magic ritual. So what does all of this have to do with Arliss, you might be asking? Some people believe her killer was a member of this religion.
3: Is there any real evidence to suggest this? No, not really.
1: The main reason this theory emerged is because Alistair Crowley's birthday is October 12th. The day Arliss was murdered. It's an important date for practitioners of Thelema. So much so, it is often referred to as Crowley Mass.
3: So could a follower of Alistair Crowley have chosen Arliss as the target of some twisted occultist ritual that turned into murder?
1: Perhaps, but... Aside from the date of Arliss' death matching the birthday of Aleister Crowley, there isn't much linking this cult to Arliss.
3: There was, however, another religious cult that became part of the Arliss story.
1: With a much stronger link.
3: That cult is known as the Process Church. Its full name is the Process Church of the Final Judgment.
1: Its belief system is rooted in the idea that its members are the chosen people, ordained to bring news of the end times.
3: The central goal of the church was to wake up mankind before the world came to an end.
1: The idea was to extricate people from the forces of conformity and mediocrity. Much
3: speculation has surrounded this religious sect, but here's what we do know.
1: It was established in 1966 in London by Mary Ann MacLean and Robert de Grimston.
3: The couple had originally belonged to the Church of Scientology, but were kicked out in 1962. Mm, this doesn't bode well. Why were they kicked out? Well, they were deemed suppressive, which in Scientology is just a fancy word for enemies. Or those people who threaten the progress of the Scientology movement. So, McLean and de Grimston formed a splinter sect called Compulsions Analysis which eventually became the Process Church.
1: During its roots, members lived in a commune in Mayfair in the west end of London, but eventually the sect moved to Mexico and it was here that leader Robert de Grimston began believing he was the reincarnation of Christ.
3: The church eventually established a central site in New Orleans when the religion spread to the United States. In
1: 1968, the church divided into three subgroups, the Luciferians, the Jehovahs, and the Satanists.
3: The Satanists were regarded as the most calculating and violent. The church became a topic of discussion during the investigation into the Manson murders.
1: It was believed by some that Charles Manson was affiliated with the Process Church, but a direct link was never confirmed.
3: It is also believed that famed serial killer David Berkowitz, aka Son of Sam, was a part of that organization. In his book, The Ultimate Evil, author and former New York Post reporter Maury Terry suggests a link between the Process Church sect in North Dakota and Arliss' murder.
1: Terry accuses the Process Church of ritual animal sacrifice, drug trafficking, child pornography, and murder. In fact, Terry believes the Process Church hired a contract killer to carry out several murders, including that of Arliss Perry.
3: But the strangeness doesn't end there. No, because Terry
1: believes serial killer David Berkowitz was involved as well.
3: Also known as the Son of Sam, Berkowitz pled guilty to eight separate shootings committed in New York City in the late 1970s.
5: I am a monster.
3: I am the Son of Sam.
5: I love to hunt.
3: He was known for shooting his victims at close range.
1: And he became famous for the strange rambling letters
5: he sent to various newspapers. Hello from the gutters of New York City, which are filled with dog manure, vomit, stale wine, urine,
3: and vomit. So how did he get involved in the investigation of Arliss Perry?
1: Well, a few years after the murder, Bismarck police were sent a book of witchcraft from
3: an anonymous source. Inside the book, there was a handwritten message. Here it is verbatim. Arliss Perry hunted, stalked, and slain. Followed to California, Stanford University.
1: It is believed the writing is that of David Berkowitz, that he sent the message to authorities.
3: Berkowitz would later admit he had joined a satanic cult in Minot, North Dakota, which author Maury Terry believes was indeed an affiliate of the Process Church. A town only
1: 110 miles away from Arliss's hometown of Bismarck. Well, that can't
3: be a coincidence, can it?
1: Well, let's review. Berkowitz claimed he was a member of a satanic group. There's discussion of a Satanist sect in North Dakota. Arliss is
3: from North Dakota. But could this message have been a hoax? It could have. But if it wasn't and Berkowitz wrote it, that would mean that he had ties to the Arliss murder through the Process Church. Not so much ties per se, but at the very least, some knowledge of the murder. But that makes me wonder, if Berkowitz's killings were tied to Satanist beliefs.
1: You mean all his shootings? Right. Well, he did allude to that in an interview.
5: I am absolutely convinced without a shadow of a doubt that I was demonically possessed and controlled. I allowed these spirits through my own ignorance to control me. The murder and mayhem was a result of that.
1: It gets very sticky here, doesn't it?
3: Ooh, it gets even stickier, because something happened in 1979, five years after Arliss's death, that suggests Berkowitz did know a great deal about the murder.
1: After he was incarcerated in 1977, San Jose homicide detectives Sergeant Kahn and Sergeant Beck, who became involved in the Arliss Perry case, interrogated Berkowitz as part of the investigation.
3: Kahn wrote a report following the interview.
1: It is dated December 3rd, 1979, five years after Arliss's murder. The following excerpts are taken directly from that report.
6: Sergeant Beck and I traveled to Attica State Prison, Attica, New York.
3: Their intention was to interview David Berkowitz to see if he knew anything about Arliss's murder, especially who killed her.
1: After getting through security, the two sergeants sat down with Berkowitz. During
6: the interview with Berkowitz, he advised that the only information he had concerning the Arliss Perry murder is from what he had read in the newspaper articles sent to him by an individual named D. Channel. However, later Berkowitz stated that he had heard about the murder from
1: someone. Who was D Channel? D Channel was supposedly Berkowitz's confidant who communicated with him while Berkowitz was incarcerated.
3: But it wasn't until the point of the interview in which the detectives asked Berkowitz if he had spoken with the person who had killed Arliss Perry that his demeanor changed.
6: Berkowitz evaded answering this question and would not confirm nor deny having this knowledge. It was at this point during the interview that Berkowitz told us the other inmates would think he was a snitch because he was talking to us for 30 minutes and wanted to return to his cell. The interview was then
1: terminated.
3: The fact that Berkowitz clammed up when the conversation turned to Arliss is very telling.
1: And it makes this mystery all the more intriguing.
3: The Stanford Daily, which had been chronicling the Arliss Perry investigation, published an article referencing the David Berkowitz link.
1: The article is dated November 29, 1984, entitled 10 Years Later, Still No Clues.
4: More than 10 years after the still unsolved incident, the case remains one of the most bizarre and grisly murders in Stanford history. In an effort to crack the case, police have established theories that link the murder both to New York's Son of Sam killer and to a satanic cult in North Dakota.
3: The article goes on to discuss Berkowitz's role in more detail.
4: There is no evidence linking Berkowitz to the actual murder, but many detectives believe he does indeed know the identity of the murderer.
3: For several decades, no real progress was made in the case.
1: It wasn't until 2016 that new information surfaced in the media.
3: We'll return to our story in just a moment. And now let's continue the story. A few years before 2016, a man by the name of Brian McCracken, then 64 years old, came forward with what he claimed was information regarding Arliss's killer. According to
1: his story, back in 1974, McCracken left a coffee shop late in the evening.
3: And ended up near the Stanford Memorial Church around midnight.
1: That's when he heard something strange. Some flute music emanating from the church. Well, this seemed
3: odd, considering how late it was. McCracken then entered the church. What he claims happened next is taken verbatim from his story.
2: Well, this guy is up at the lectern, um, a young, skinny, white guy, and he has an Afro wig on, uh, a light-colored, large Afro wig. It looked very striking, and he's playing a flute, a large silver flute. Uh, To the right of him on the altar was this nude girl lying on the altar. She has candlesticks burning, one on either side of her. As I walk down the aisle, he looked at me. He doesn't seem happy to see me. And then she is lying flat on the altar. And she's looking straight up to the top of the church. She turns her head to the left and smiles. Well. By this time, I'm within 20 feet of the flautist and her on the altar. I had the feeling there was no danger to the girl. Didn't look serious. The girl looked uh, comfortable.
1: McCracken went on to say that the man gave him a threatening look, which made McCracken feel unwelcome, so he left.
3: What do you think McCracken believed was happening in there?
1: Well, he later explained that he thought the two people in there were participating in some black mass or a game involving the occult.
3: But he didn't take it that seriously.
1: Right, so he didn't talk to the police about it then.
3: But what about after reports surfaced of the murder? Why didn't he come forward then?
1: Apparently, he wasn't really privy to those reports due to a packed travel schedule which had him going all over for business.
3: But he had to have heard about the murder, right? It was big news for Palo Alto. He has
1: said that he knew of a murder in a church, but didn't connect the dots that it occurred at Memorial Church.
3: Okay. And so he didn't make the connection between the murder of Arliss Perry and the events that he'd witnessed. That's right. So why did this man suddenly come out of the woodwork more than 40 years later?
1: Well, in 2011, McCracken was speaking with a police officer, and somehow the conversation turned to this unsolved case.
3: And it was then that McCracken put the pieces together?
1: Yes, and after speaking with the police officer about the Arliss Perry case, McCracken started doing some of his own investigating. He researched who the flautist was. He then brought all that information to the police.
3: And in February of 2012, McCracken helped perform a sting operation with the Santa Clara police, Right. Right. McCracken and an investigator posed as reporters. The man answered their questions and even alluded to the afro wig. McCracken distinctly remembered.
1: But in the end, authorities did not feel there was any real evidence to link this mysterious flautist to the killing.
3: And what of the DNA evidence found at the crime scene?
1: Since the technology has improved over the years, there is hope that someone will eventually be a match. The flautist's DNA was tested, but he wasn't a match. As of right now, there is no one in the system that matches the samples authorities collected.
3: The case itself is such an odd one.
1: Indeed. And the theories surrounding it involve a strange web of unlikely people.
3: Alistair Crowley.
1: And, of course, David Berkowitz.
3: Oddly enough, Berkowitz, who is still in prison, now claims he's a reformed man.
1: Mm. In a recent documentary called Son of Sam, the Killer Speaks, Berkowitz gives an interview where he claims that he has found Jesus and considers
5: himself a born-again Christian.
3: Now, at the age of 64, Berkowitz calls himself something different.
5: The people in the news media used to call me the Son of Sam. But God has given me a new name, the son of hope. Because now my life is about hope.
3: The irony? Yeah,
5: right. From
1: Satanist to born-again Christian.
3: So we know where Berkowitz ended up, but you may be wondering, what became of Bruce, Arliss' husband?
1: The well, story is quite an interesting one. Bruce went on to remarry.
3: And he became a psychiatrist, specializing in childhood trauma.
1: In fact, he is currently the senior fellow of the Child Trauma Academy in Houston, Texas.
3: Not to mention an adjunct professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at the Feinberg School of Medicine in Chicago. His research centers on exploring the long-term effects of trauma in children and adults and how traumatic events during childhood can change the chemical makeup of the brain. He has written over 200 psychiatric journal articles. He's also written books. One of them is titled, The Boy Who Was Raised as a Dog, What Traumatized Children Can Teach Us About Loss, Love, and Healing.
1: I can't help but think that the
3: experience of losing his wife led him down this path. Well, absolutely. Absolutely. He was a pre-med student at Stanford, and I can imagine that the trauma of losing Arliss inspired his interest in the psychiatric field.
1: But we can't really know for certain. He doesn't talk much about her death. With good reason. So, it's come to that time. Now that we have addressed Alistair Crowley, the Process Church, and David Berkowitz, what do we think actually happened
3: to Arliss? I'd say I have to agree most with Maury Terry, author of The Ultimate Evil. Arless angered some Satanists affiliated with the Process Church in North Dakota who then arranged her death in California. This is actually the most convincing narrative to me.
1: I agree. The tangents this case takes, like the link to David Berkowitz, are so bizarre they may just be reality.
3: Which is often stranger than fiction.
1: Yes. Berkowitz seemed to know who her killer was. He had ties to a cult that included devil worship.
3: But do you believe he had a hand in her murder?
1: Uh, no. I think just the knowledge. I agree with you there. But I have to pose the question. Is there any way this was simply a killing done by a random person, not associated with a cult or Satanist organization?
3: You mean like a crazed person who just wanted to kill Arliss? Yes. But then where's the motive? Motive is often the most important piece of the murder puzzle and provides concrete reasons for a crime.
1: So maybe the killer did have a motive. Maybe the killer fell under Arliss's sweet-natured Midwestern spell and developed an obsession with her.
3: Oh, I see where you're going with this.
1: Maybe he began communicating with her, and when she rejected his advances, he became angry. Maybe he showed up at her work, and because of their argument, he grew even angrier, which planted the seeds for murder, which he committed the next day.
3: I do think that's a viable theory. But I still have to say I side with the conspiracy theorists. Considering Arlis's background and that her entire world revolved around spreading her religious views. Well,
1: not to mention the manner in which she was killed and the location.
3: Exactly. The Satanist component feels coherent with all those details. However, there's no real imagery at the crime that links her undoubtedly to a particular cult or organization.
1: There is another possibility. What's that? That Arliss was killed by a transient who was hiding out, even sleeping in the church. And when he saw her, he
3: struck? Well, if that's the case, then why an ice pick? It seems so specific.
1: Or is it something a troubled straggler would find in a dumpster? Maybe we're assuming specificity and motive when there isn't any.
3: That seems like a theory any unsolved murder case could generate. It doesn't give us anything to hang our hat on. What about a serial killer who was never caught? Remember the string of murders in Palo Alto within a two-year period?
1: Yes. But the MO of those murders didn't match the MO of the Arliss Perry murder. That's true. So I think it's settled then. Although we entertain other possible scenarios, we both agree. Arliss was the target of a cult or Satanist organization. Or at the very least, a member or members who felt threatened by her presence.
3: It's just heartbreaking that a woman trying to do what she felt was best could have been murdered for her good intentions. And
1: because of that, I really want to know the actual truth of Arliss's murder.
3: Well, someday we may. Perhaps another surprise witness will emerge in the coming years. Until then,
1: all we can do is theorize and pay our respects to a young woman who, as Reverend Hammerton Kelly put it, as a member of the body of Christ, was cut off as she prayed.
3: Don't forget to subscribe to Unsolved Murders on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or any other podcast directory. If you like what you hear, leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We are on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time.
1: Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and developed by Ron Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Ron Shapiro and Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Unsolved Murders is written by Jessica Mallo and stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, by Alphabetical Order, Mike Capozzi, Jerry Courtney Austin, Kimberly Holland, Harris Markson, and Steve Pinto.